This I just plastered over where it said according to Mark and put John on it, given it's a one-off sermon. Because next week we will be uh, starting in an Old Testament book. We'll be looking at the book of Joel starting next week. And I think we have five weeks in Joel and then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians after that. So there you go. That'll probably cover most of this year, I'd imagine. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we desperately need your help. You are high and mighty, exalted above everything. And we are lowly and anything we do have, we only have because you have given it to us. Humble us, help us to be aware of our true nature, of our own limitations, but also open our eyes to see something more of the wonder of who you are, of our identity in Christ and the change that he has effected in our life by his death, resurrection, that we have received abundantly through repentance and faith. Uh, So Lord, speak to us through your word uh, that we might understand you better, respond to you better, and Lord, be changed to be more like you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed whenever you go to a big event, and if it's, particularly if it's a reasonably famous speaker, before they introduce the person, they don't just say, here comes this person. Sometimes I've been to things where they go for almost like two minutes listing all the achievements and the credentials of the speaker. I, mean, I understand sometimes if they're talking on a specialised subject to kind of give a reason why this person has expertise to speak on. It might make a little bit of sense. But I've seen it happen even in contexts where that would be totally unrelated, where it would be totally unnecessary. And there's this idea that the longer the list, the greater and more successful is the person you're about to see. Imagine if Matt introduced it, here comes Steve Adams, Bachelor of Theology from the Bible College of Victoria, six-year pastor of the Mafra Community Church, six years at Eastgate Bible Church, the vice president of the FECA, about to preach roughly his 500th sermon. You'd think, who's this guy? Who does he think he is? How full of himself? Who cares? Has he got it? Oh, we'll decide whether or not his message is any good based on the message and what God does, regardless of what you say beforehand, and you should rightly think that way. Fairly, that type of introduction shouldn't fit well in a church. Think about the way Paul speaks himself. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. That's a pretty good title. Anything that Paul achieved, and he did achieve much, he did entirely by the work of God and God's power as he depended upon him. And because all of it was God, God's work, God's power, he could have used anybody. The instrument to whom God chooses to use effectively is insignificant. It's not about their qualifications or their skills. 
but it's of their dependence upon the one who does the work. Now that can be encouraging for us to know that God can do a mighty work through any of his people. Regardless of our qualifications, regardless of our skills, regardless of our previous experiences. But before we look at this passage, I want to begin with a challenge. Do you think God can do mighty things through you? It's a simple yes-no answer. You don't have to yell it out. But to think through it, do you think God could do mighty works through you? Because there's only two options. It'll either be yes or no. If your answer is yes, on what basis do you give that yes? Is it because your confidence is in your own skills? How God has maybe done things in and through you in the past? Is your confidence in you or is it in him? It can be a good answer or it can be a bad answer. If the confidence is in yourself, your qualifications, past success, then this morning's passage will correct and humble. To those who answered no, potentially you could be in a far better position than those who proudly and boldly said yes. Not if the reason for your no is because you've got a lack of faith or a confidence that God can do things in you. But if the reason for your initial no is because you have a low opinion of yourself and what you can contribute, then that is a good, foundational, necessary place to begin in order to trust in God, his power and his sufficiency and not your own. This morning we're going to look at looking at your inability in verses 1 to 5, seeing the Lord in 6 to 8, seeing his provision, that should say, in 9 to 14, and wrapping up with when nothing equals everything. Firstly, seeing your inability. So just to get the setting, so it says sometime afterwards, so sometimes afterwards that Jesus had had made himself known to the disciples at least on two occasions, including that great confession of Thomas when Thomas sees him and says, My Lord and my God. There is nothing questionable about about Thomas's confession. He says in the Greek, The Lord and the God of me. Jesus does not correct him in any way whatsoever, but receives that claim about his nature. Now, the physical setting is on the Sea of Tiberias. And you might think, I haven't really heard much about the Sea of Tiberias so far when we've been reading through the scriptures. You see, it was a sea that you are familiar with. Most of the times when we read about in the Gospel accounts, we read about the Sea of Galilee. But later on, it became named the Sea of Tiberias after the Emperor Tiberius. And so at the time which John is writing, John is using the language of what it is called in the time in which he is writing it. But by John's wording twice in verse 1, it speaks about how Jesus revealed himself on this occasion. That this is something of a revelatory act of something about Jesus, his nature and his plan. 
Now, we don't know why there's only seven of the disciples here on this particular occasion. We've got Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John. Well, just here this is the sons of Zebedee, but that's who they are. And two others who are not named. And as Peter announces, I'm going fishing, all the others think, sweet, let's go fishing. And they go in and join him. Now, strangely and oddly, there are some commentators who think this is a bad move. There are some who look at this and say, Peter and the disciples have been given a mission. Jesus has said, just as I am sent, so I am sending you. But here they are, back going to fishing again. Have they turned their back on the mission which Jesus has given them? Now, I think that's a little bit of a harsh statement and an unnecessary statement. The reason why I think it's no need to go to that sort of conclusion, Mark 14, 28 and 16, 7, we see that Jesus told them to go to Galilee. So they're in the place where Jesus told them to be. And secondly, whether you're an apostle or whether you're an everyday person, you need to eat. So I don't see any reason to say that they've turned their back on their mission for a moment, but rather they are exactly where Jesus told them to be and they need to eat. Now it's true that a number of the disciples were professional fishermen. But even though they were professional fishermen, they'd gone out onto the sea at night at the optimal time to catch fish. They caught absolutely nothing. And you think, this sounds a little bit like deja vu. Haven't haven't I read this somewhere else? It's vaguely referred to back in the first chapter of Mark, but in more detail in Luke chapter 5. A similar occasion when when they're out the boat, they've been out all night, they they catch nothing. Jesus says, throw your net on the other side, and all of a sudden they catch heaps of stuff. But they're not the same event. It's pretty clear that John has stated here that this was the third time that they had seen Jesus after he had been raised. They're similar, but they're not the same event. The first occasion back in Luke chapter 5 was the initial calling of the disciples. And Jesus used that point to illustrate, I am going to make you fishers of men. Now, Jesus is here on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, but the disciples didn't recognise him. Whether it's like some of the other occasions where it says that they were kept from recognising him, or if it's just because of the fact that it's early in the morning, it's dark, he's 90 metres away, we don't know. But what Jesus does say to them is, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. This language of children is kind of like lads, fellas. You haven't caught any fish, have you? Now, I'm not a fisherman, not even slightly a fisherman. I've been fishing once in my life. I caught lots of fish, but it was impossible not to in that particular location. But I'm led to understand that have you caught any fish is not always a popular question. For two reasons. One, that if you've caught a lot of fish, you don't want to tell people where the good spot is. Or secondly, the one that 
the male pride doesn't like is if you're saying no, you've got to admit that all of your efforts and all of your skills, you got nothing. But recall, at this point in time, these seven disciples have no idea who's asking them the question. They don't know that it's Jesus, but despite all of their expertise, all of them doing all of the right things, they humbly admit they've got nothing. Now John has already implied this is a revelatory event. See Luke 5 where where Jesus says you'll become fishes of men. So what can we learn in these beginning verses but what the point that Jesus might be making to the disciples thus far? I think you can conclude one thing. No amount of skills, no amount of effort guarantees fruitfulness in the kingdom. No amount of time, effort, skills, previous experience counts for anything. There's no lack of great evangelistic resources, evangelistic methods. In fact, you could master every single one of them and end up totally frustrated. I see nothing come of this. Nothing at all. I've spent all my time, all my effort, I've done exactly the way that I've been taught. And sadly, if we're honest, we... We confess that we can be fooled into thinking that if I just do things the right way, with the right effort, I can do this. And we too need to be reminded, as Jesus did his own disciples, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. We are called to abide, we are called to remain in him. From there comes the power and the enabling and the leading. You disconnect himself from that. All of your efforts, all of your skills count for nothing. It's not a popular phrase in our culture. The phrase, I can't do it. Got a child in our house who doesn't like that phrase at all either. Some personality types find that harder than others to admit it. I cannot do this. But the reality, if you are in Christ, there is nothing in the Christian walk that you can do in and of yourself. And sadly, there are so many people in ministry who are putting in great effort with great content and who are thoroughly frustrated at the lack of what is coming out of that ministry. We need to own our inability to do anything that will bear good spiritual fruit in our own strength. Because only when we recognise, I cannot do it, we'll be reminded we are to abide in him. He alone does the work. We are dependent upon him, even in the areas where we have had great success in the past. And when I say we have had success in the past, I mean 
he has had success in the past in and through his people. When you stop seeing what you think you have, you will start seeing who you serve. For the disciples, recognising that all of their efforts come to nothing and having no idea who is speaking to them, verses 6 and 7 probably sound a little bit odd. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now these are expert fishermen. They know what they're doing. They've done it many, many times before. They've done it at the right, best time of the day and night to do it. And someone's told them, put the net on the other side. Now, we're not talking about a big, massive boat where you're going from one side to the other, you're going to be in a whole different bit of the water. In fact, this here is a, a first century fishing boat that was found near, found near the Sea of Galilee, not the one necessarily that Peter and the disciples are in, but it is not a big boat. Putting a net from one side to the other is not going to be an overly different outcome in terms of normal thinking. They don't know who's giving the advice, but for some reason, they do it. The Bible doesn't tell us why they did it, but they did it. After absolutely no outcome from all of their skills, all of the time, all night, they just listened to someone who they didn't know it was, they obeyed what they told them to, put it somewhere else very nearby, and they got a massive amount in that net, almost immediately it seems. One simple act of obedience to Jesus, even though they didn't recognise it was to Jesus, produced much fruit. It wasn't skills plus obedience. And even I could have cast the net out there and got a massive thing. It had nothing to do with the person who, who chucked the net over the side. It was so clearly entirely the work of someone other than the fishermen. That was very obvious to the disciples. None of them said, oh, really, are all the fish on this side? Oh, I didn't realise that. Sounds a bit like Peter Dutton there, didn't it? Sorry. In fact, it would seem very similar the previous event. The disciple whom Jesus loved, which we believe to be John himself, therefore, in other words, as a result of what he'd seen, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. Now that he's seen this and he's like, now, nah, I know this, this is the hand of, handiwork of Jesus. I've seen him pull this one before. But it's not all the same as Luke chapter 5. In particular, look at the different response of Peter the miracle. In Luke chapter 5, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And John, after Jesus was raised from the dead, similar type of miracle, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. 
He put on his outer garment because he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea, all excited to see Jesus. The first encounter made Peter deeply aware of his own sinfulness before Jesus. In the second encounter, after Jesus has died and been raised again, he knew the grace of Jesus and rushed to him. This miraculous outcome, all of it had taken place even before they knew who it was they were speaking with. And because of it, they came to see him who had again provided once more for them. Although Peter originally leaves all the others to bring in the big haul of the catch, they all eventually get to the shore, find Jesus got a little campfire there, cooking him some bread, some fish on the fire, ask them to bring some of their own fish from the catch in. This is the same Jesus that back in John chapter 13 had washed their feet and served them in that way. Now the risen Christ continues to serve and provide for them. And you can have to say, even though he asks for their fish, it's the fish that he has provided, every single part of it, he is still providing for his people, coming to them. And they had a pretty hefty catch, 153 of them. Now, while there's lots of people with theories about why 153 and they come to all these number theories, they're all really just guesses in the end. The conclusions are biblically sound, but whether or not that was intended by the number, I reckon it's just, if you've got a big fish, you can just imagine someone saying, wow, look at all that, let's see how many there are, and someone counted them. That's about as far as I would go to making a point of it. It was a big amount. They'd done something, worked with all of their effort all night and got nothing, but now they had 153 ship fish and they can associate that as nothing else than the work of Jesus. Despite the fact they had seen him lots of times before, at least twice, that's not lots, the disciples were still a little bit uneasy. It sounds weird that they, they knew it was Jesus, but all of them were afraid to ask, is it you? It's like they, they know they've seen him, but it still doesn't set, set right with them. It doesn't tell us why. It could just be because, let's face it, resurrections don't happen every day of the week. Or maybe it's just because it's now the risen Lord and he's still serving them. We don't know. What we do know is Jesus Christ is risen. He comes to his people still. Still serving them, still providing for them, still helping them. Even before they even recognised it was him. This wasn't going to end upon his ascension. Just as Jesus promised when they were starting to worry, what are, you going to do when, what are we going to do when you go away? He says, I will send you another helper. The promised Holy Spirit, the fullness of God, come to dwell in his people, to continue to help, enable, and do everything as he provides. What skills or credentials do we need to receive his help and enabling? Nothing of ours. Purely a recognition that in and of ourselves we have nothing. But in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. 
Everything that we need for life and godliness, we have received. It's a case of when nothing equals everything. Now, I've always loved Luke's account in chapter 5, where Jesus calls the disciples and he uses this as an illustration to show them that no longer will you just be fishers for fish, you will become fishers of men. And I think it's fitting that Jesus returns to this symbolism again after he's raised. This still is your mission. This still is your role. Remember, your skills count for nothing. Trusting me, my words, my power, that is everything. But the two accounts, they're not just repeating the same thing for the exact same point, exact same message. There are differences. We saw Peter's different responses, firstly one of of fear because of his own sin, another one where he's known the grace of Jesus and goes, just jumps in, goes after him. In the Luke account, the nets break. But John goes out of his way to specifically say the nets did not break on this occasion. I think Jesus is trying to get the impression, you know I told you you're going to be fishers of men, you will catch people, you will lead people to Christ in abundance and there is no limit. The kingdom can handle. The nets will not break, it will not reach a breaking point. Now, because we live in a culture that's so driven by credentials or experience, we can easily become really discouraged as Christians if we weigh ourselves by that scale. Because we might not have a great deal of experience, might not have a great deal of credentials in terms of the worldly sense of credentials, but you do have credentials. If you are in Christ, you have been given every spiritual blessing. You've been given everything pertaining to life, and godliness abide in him apart from him you can do nothing it's also so easy to become discouraged when you begin trusting in a method in past experiences or in qualifications you have frustrating that you're not getting the results that you wanted to when you've done exactly what you've done in the past My encouragement to every one of us, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you if you are his child. Every single one of you. This person over here hasn't got like 50%. That person over there has got 55 because they're a little bit better. The very fullness of God has come to dwell in his children. So like Paul, we can gladly own our weakness. We can gladly say, in and of myself, I've got nothing. But in him, the resurrected Christ, as Paul prayed, we read last week, I want to know the power of his resurrection. In him is all strength, all sufficiency. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times when we have presumed that by our method or our skill, 
that we can do something worthwhile for your kingdom. We have nothing of our own skills that are of any advantage or benefit to you. You are the ruler over all. You are the Lord. We simply cling to you, follow your leading, follow the things that you have clearly spoken to us through, your, through the scriptures. And when you do choose to do something in and through your people, we don't get proud. We don't pat ourselves on the back. But we recognise that it is you working through normal, faulty, everyday vessels for the power and display of your might and glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who'd like to read ahead for next week, we're going to be looking at Joel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20.